four-week series called Can I Ask That? And the inspiration for this series came from a book by Rebecca McLaughlin entitled Confronting Christianity. A Harvard professor says of her book that, quote, it probes some of the trickiest cultural challenges to Christianity of our day and clearly demonstrates the breadth and richness of a Christian response. Now, we've been giving you a warning and update about this series, but I want to just for a moment again say, why are we doing this? What we'll do this morning will certainly be a, have a different look and feel than what we normally do, which is to teach through a book of the Bible. This morning will feel and look a little different. First, we want to help you work through questions and doubts that may be very real to you. Second, with that help, you'll be better equipped to speak to those around you, Christians and non-Christians. One of our significant values is to empower you to be an effective witness and spokesman for Christ. Third, we hope that you'll invite a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker to these very relevant messages. And fourth, some of you attending our church may be skeptical yourself. You're not sold on the claims of Jesus. And we welcome your questions and want to try to honestly answer them. Maybe you grew up in a church where you were expected to accept things and never ask questions. Honest doubts revealed a weak faith or disrespect for the Bible or church leaders. Just want you to know, we don't think that. There are challenges to reconciling what we see in the Bible with what we experience in everyday life. It is good to acknowledge that tension. Pastor Nick Carruthers, this, earlier this week, found a really great article that spoke to this tension. It was written by a teenager named Catherine, and it was called An Open Letter to Pastors About the Teens in Their Congregation. And among other really insightful things, Catherine wrote the following. She said, the teen years are when you come to grips with what you believe. When you wrestle with doubt and deep questioning about yourself, the world, and the God who made it all. The simple answers that were enough for us at a younger age aren't enough now. We need solid theology and sound doctrine and the kind of teaching that acknowledges real difficulties and gives biblical answers to them. We need an apologetic that engages both the heart and the mind and we need to know that asking these questions is not just okay, but necessary to the formation of a deeper faith. We could not agree more with that sentiment. And I think she speaks not only for teens, but for all of us. So, let's pray, and then I'll introduce the first question this morning. Bow with me, please. Let's talk to God together. Father, thank you for what we've already experienced this morning. The songs that we have sung that express our beliefs and God our hopes. Father, the sharing of 
burdens together as a community as we prayed for members that are hurting and ill and coming together as a community. Father, for the events that help us draw together and pull together and connect with You and connect with one another. And now, Father, learning together. We pray that this morning our mind and hearts would be affected by the truth and the reality of Your existence. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question we want to start with this morning is, aren't we better off without religion? Aren't we better off without religion? Now, why and how did this become an increasingly momentous question? There's a story here, a background. We have to remember a very difficult day to put this in context. And that day is September 11th, 2000. And one, on that terrible day, the danger of religious fundamentalism and religious extremism hit home. Two planes, or three planes, piloted by those who believed an eternal glory awaited them, motivated by a religious zeal, crashed those planes into the World Trade Center in New York City and one into the Pentagon at Washington, D.C., killing 3,000 Americans. Given the vivid and terrible imagery surrounding the attack, given the newfound vulnerability that we all felt, given that the planes were aimed at our nation's political and financial center, it was a day that sank deep into the heart of every American. This was religion at its worst. So several years ago, on the anniversary of 9-1-1, an article published in the Huffington Post shed light on the connection between this event and our question. It was entitled, 9-1-1 and the Rise of the New Atheism. It was written by a commentator named Stax Roche, who identified himself as a vocal atheist, humanist, progressive, and Jedi. I just thought that was clever. Here's what he wrote. Before September 11, 2001, many atheists had a very live-and-let-live attitude towards religion. Many atheists obviously believed that religious beliefs were silly, but they weren't hurting anyone. How dangerous could they be? But on 9-1-1, the world saw just how dangerous dogmatic faith-based ideas could be, and as a result, many atheists realized that faith is not something that can be reasoned with. From this historical moment, a new atheist narrative emerged. It attacked the Christian faith and religion not only as wrong, but as dangerous. Prime examples included Richard Dawkins' book, 2006, The God Delusion, which stayed on the New York Times bestsellers list for 51 weeks. In 2008, Christopher Hitchens, now passed, wrote that God is not great, how religion poisons everything. This frontal attack argued with new fervor that Christianity was neither credible nor a force for good. Rather, the Christian faith and religion in general was barbaric, delusional, archaic, and disproved by science. 
Now, visual storytellers also pushed the narrative of the dangers of religion. For example, The Handmaid's Tale was a Hulu drama. It's a dystopian drama based on the 1985 novel by Margaret Atwood. McLaughlin writes about this in her book, and she says, This story imagines a, a New England ruled by a pseudo-Christian sect called the Sons of Jacob. Now, this sect is particularly degrading towards women. Women's bank accounts are suspended. They are forbidden to read or work jobs. Those still fertile after a nuclear fallout are assigned to male commanders who seek to impregnate them in a monthly ceremony supposedly modeled on Abraham's impregnation of his wife Sarah's handmaid. Partly inspired by the 1980 Islamic Revolution in Iran, the show's writer pictures a similarly repressive, supposedly Christian regime. Now, this is but one example. There has been a long list of stories, shows, and songs that invite us to reject religion, to regard it as dangerous. Now, I'm not suggesting that 911 made all of this new. Way back in 1966, John Lennon wrote this. Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and will be proved right. John Lennon was actually verbalizing something that was very, um, uh, in the academic world, very much spoken of in the 60s. And uh, uh, actually, we won't go into this today, but actually, the exact opposite has taken place around the world. The world is becoming far, far more religious. But nonetheless, Lenin's ideas, were Lenin's ideas would eventually hit us viscerally. They would flood our senses through the world-renowned song, Imagine. A song that held out a utopia, uh, lyrics inviting us to envision a world without religion, the song took on the feel of an anthem when performed by a children's choir bathed in glorious lights and colors at the 2012 London Olympics. So 911 did not begin the assault on religion, but it certainly intensified it. So I come back to this question, are the atheists correct? Would we be better off without religion? I'd like this morning to give you three responses to that. I'm going to begin with this first one. I'm going to actually back up into it, arrive at it deductively, so just stick with me. First, I think, to make this point, we should say that we can all agree that religion can cause harm. Of that, there is no doubt. Or that many terrible things have happened and continue to happen in the name of religion. But to suggest that means religion is bad is like saying that all drugs are bad for you. Saying that that means religion is bad is like saying all drugs are bad for you without making any distinction between cocaine and life-saving cures for cancer. Should we throw out all drugs because some people abuse them? Or is it true that even good things used by wrong people or for wrong reasons can go desperately bad. 
Here's another way of saying it. The truth of an idea cannot be judged solely on how well an individual or community live out that truth. So what I am saying is this. When we examine the surface evidence and say religion causes war or divisions or degrades women or prevents people from being fully alive, we have to make sure we also consider this, that something sacred is being handled by flawed human beings. Now, this same dynamic and principle is illustrated all throughout the world in many ways, in nature and in life. I find this dynamic illustrated very interestingly through our never-ending hope to find the perfect politician. Right? We had this never-ending hope of finding the perfect politician, the one who embodies justice, the one who guards our democracy, our freedom. Let me explain what I mean and take a, a few moments with this. Do you realize that storytellers for generations have given us accounts or mythical stories of the larger-than-life politician? Our grandparents grew up watching the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I love that movie. (laughs) Now, my generation, it was the movie Dave. Remember that? And for this generation, more recently, it was a TV show, Designated Survivor, featuring Kiefer Sutherland as President Thomas Kirkman. Each of these stories paint a caricature of the ideal politician. They are humane, they are generous, large-minded, not affected by special interests, not swayed by power, connecting to the common person. But when the curtains are pulled back on our politicians, a darker story emerges. Take just one example. Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. Johnson became a president in 1964, or 1963, when Kennedy was assassinated, and then won on his own in 1964. Johnson grew up dirt poor and never lost his deep Texas roots. He had an inborn distrust of high society life. He, his wife, his wife even had a remarkable and highly relatable nickname, Ladybird, that we all loved. You know, Johnson has some remarkable accomplishments. He led the passage of the Civil Rights Bill, something that was overdue for a century. He pushed through the nomination of the first black Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, Both of these victories required great courage. They overcame insurmountable odds and required a sense of what was just. We may be tempted to believe that in LBJ we found our Mr. Smith. Yet at a much closer look, the picture was not so ideal. There was a shadow side. Johnson was power hungry. He was manipulative. He was deeply insecure and he desperately needed to be needed. A lot of individuals were pushed out of the way in his attempt to help the masses. Now, we could cite many more examples, but I don't need to. It's something that you know. But here is the relevant question and how it fits 
to what I'm trying to argue. What do we do with the inconvenient truth about the leaders that our democracy produces? Should we throw out the ideals of democracy and representative government because it is filtered through the strain of human imperfection? Is democracy itself a bad idea because of some bad actors? I suggest it is not. And I think if we evaluate religion based on a few bad actors, we are not really arguing the merits of the case. We are simply affirming a truth the Bible already says that even the best of us are really sinners. So, yes, we concede the point that bad things are done in the name of religion. But the fact that we know things, the fact that we know things like the Inquisition and the Crusades are bad things actually turns this argument upside down. Stay with me here. The fact that atheists and Christians agree on what makes some behaviors moral and others immoral is an argument for the benefits of religion. Because religion, unlike atheism, has the ability to correct itself. Did you ever think about that? Religion, unlike atheism, has the ability to correct itself. The fact that we all agree violence and oppression is a bad thing means that it is being compared to some standard. Something we implicitly know is good and right. And if that standard equally applies to you and to me and to someone living on the other side of the world and to someone who lived a thousand years ago and to someone who will live a thousand years ago, then that moral standard cannot come from any one of us. It must necessarily, philosophically, it must come from a moral being greater than us, transcendent of us, outside of us. And of course, having a universal standard of absolute right and wrong is actually one of the strongest arguments that can be made for a religious world, not an atheistic one. How can an atheist insist that an act of violence or oppression is wrong without inserting their own feelings into the matter? They can't. Because feelings are all they have to rely on. They have no universal standard to appeal to. Because without God, there are no oughts. There is no ultimate right and wrong. Without God, there is no language that you ought to behave a certain way. Without God, we cannot make moral progress because we don't know where we're going to. It's impossible. Philosophically, it is impossible. All the atheist is left with is his or her own individual opinions and feelings, and that's all they are. Religion has the ability to correct itself. This is another way of saying religion encourages true moral progress, and that's our first point. Religion encourages true moral progress, something a world without religion cannot do. 
Now, where have we seen this carried out? Let me try to put this into real, like, like real contemporary world experience. Consider how the Christian faith, particularly the Christian faith, has made progress in its view of violence as a mean of carrying out God's will. Think about the tremendous progress that has been made. And why has that progress been made? Because Jesus Christ set the standard for his followers. Jesus Christ commanded his followers. He set an ideal and called us to love our enemies and not resist them. Now, in the 20th century, the words of Jesus strongly influenced Gandhi. And a few years later, they influenced Martin Luther King, one person not a Christian, one person a Christian, but still showing the influence of the words of Jesus. The scriptures themselves were the foundation for our civil rights movement. And these peacemaking, revolutionary ideas found in the Bible ever since have been making an impact on the entire world. Of course, you say, I've never heard this. Of course you haven't heard it. These stories are not told. These stories aren't told. I would encourage you to pick up a book by Ron Sider called Nonviolent Action. Sider tells the untold story and shares example after example of how the words of Jesus are affecting governments. They are creating Christian peacemaking teams. And these organizations and peacemaking teams have been helping de-escalate world conflicts around the world. This is the religious progress coming from the words of Jesus. Now, I'm going to stop there on this point because I can see Pastor Nick Carruthers is wincing because I'm jumping into his topic, which is next week. Doesn't religion cause violence? So come next week and bring your friends to that. And Nick, I'm done, so you can take it from there. <laughs> Let's go to the second point. I'm going to spend less time here on the second point and third point. But are we better off without religion? No. Because religion promotes true moral progress. Secondly, religion promotes happiness and well-being. Really, I thought religion was poisonous. I thought it was bad for you. And I just want you to know these, these again, these studies one after another. I uh, listened to a debate and uh, a Jewish rabbi named David Wolpe, I'll cite him here in a moment, cited the Oxford Handbook of religion and well-being and showing the connection. Over 300 articles, many of them researched and done by non-Christians, all coming up with a similar thesis. Let me share that. McLaughlin here quotes uh, this article by a Harvard professor, Tyler Vandeweel, and a USA Today journalist. They wrote a piece in USA Today called Religion, this is their phrase, may be a miracle drug. Here's what McLaughlin writes about that. If one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? She says the authors go on to outline the mental and physical health benefits that are correlated with regular religious participation. And for most Americans, that means going to church 
even to the extent of reducing mortality rates by 20 and 30% over a 15-year period. Research suggests that those who regularly attend services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, and are less likely to divorce and are more self-controlled. Study after study after study. Now, why is this? Part of the answer lies in relationships. I've often said this. The church is like a relationship factory. You back your truck up and you learn how to do relationships. Parenting, friendships, marriage. There's a language, there's skill sets that we teach. Religion fosters relationships. A 75, whoever does a 75-year study of well-being from Harvard concluded this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. Friends, they could have saved their money on that. I could have told you that. But they found, again, despite what we think and believe about wealth and success and, 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 and material possessions, still the happiest and healthiest people prioritize relationships with family, friends, and community. Again, most of us don't need to be convinced of that. Another part of this research, a, a book by Jonathan Haidt called Happiness Hypothesis, 2000 book, 2006, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. Haidt is a social psychologist at New York University. He's been named one of the world's top thinkers. In one part of his book, he sets forth two people in striking contrast to one another to illustrate his research about happiness. First, we meet Bob. Bob is 35 years old, single, white, attractive, and athletic. He earns $100,000 a year and lives in sunny Southern California. He is highly intellectual, and he spends his free time reading and going to museums. Single gals, I'm sorry, it's a, it's a fictional character. I don't, I don't have any contact information. Next, we meet Mary. Mary and her husband live in snowy Buffalo, New York, where they earn a combined income of $40,000. Mary is 65 years old. She's black. She's overweight, and she's plain in appearance. She is highly sociable, and she spends her free time mostly in activities related to her church. She's on dialysis for kidney problems. Mary has health problems, lives in relative poverty, and has doubtless endured a lifetime of discrimination. Now I ask you, who would you rather be, Bob or Mary? Now, Haydn writes that Bob seems to have it all, and few of his readers would prefer Mary's life to his. Yet if you had to bet on it, you should bet that Mary is happier than Bob. Now, this is not based on speculation. It's not based on Haydn's religious prejudice. I, have no, I do not think he's a Christian or writing as a religious person. But on the range of factors of what he discovered about happiness and well-being, you better bet on Mary. 
So this question I come back to, aren't we better off without religion? For millions of people around the world, the answer would be a resounding no. And so let's just recap where we've been. Our base question is, aren't we better off without religion? Number one, I give a counterpunch. So all I'm trying to do this morning is just give counterpunches. I've tried to argue that no, religion encourages true moral progress. And secondly, no, religion promotes happiness and well-being. Let me give here just one final counterpunch this morning, and that is that religion is a force for good in the world. I mentioned David Wolpe. He's a well-known Jewish rabbi from Los Angeles. He's been featured uh, in many, many major uh, uh, news articles and on, on uh, uh, news shows. His book, Why Faith Matters, has been widely read. Uh, Protestant past- pastor Rick Warren wrote the foreword to that book. Whoopi wrote this in the defense of religion. He said this, that the largest, again, untold story, we don't usually hear about this, the largest international aid organization in the world is a Christian organization out of Seattle. He's referring to, of course, World Vision. Actually, I heard him say in a debate, he said that World Vision has more aid workers in the field than the top, the top three or four secular aid organizations combined. But, he says, a lot of the good that religion does in the world goes unreported. Not because people are prejudiced against religion. That's just the nature of reporting the news. You don't say, once again today, a religious aid worker saved someone's life. That just doesn't make the paper. Religion is more complex and does much more good than people assume. Every single study in America shows that the people who are part of religious communities participate in civic life more. They give more money not only to religious charities, but to secular charities. They are more likely to help someone who's homeless and more likely to help someone who's destitute. Religion does an enormous amount of good. And even though there are certainly some egregious counterexamples, they are more flashy than they are persuasive. And of course, they get all the attention. Here's a real-life story as told by the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. The Lilly Family School of Philanthropy is housed uh, at a state university. It's not a religious organization. But from their website, they said this. With the majority of global citizens belonging to a religious tradition, it should be no surprise that religion often becomes the greatest asset in humanitarian work. Whether fighting AIDS, malaria, or poverty, the development community has realized the success of local programs so often turns on the support of the local faith community. The engagement of the local imam or priest is essential. And then they cited this specific example. Just a few years ago, the humanitarian industry industry was convinced of the truth of this view when they found that a majority of healthcare workers left on the ground in the midst of the Ebola crisis. Remember that? Majority of the aid workers left on the ground were missionaries. And they finally wrote, Faith was the chief motivator for those both funding and serving 
in some of the most difficult parts of the world. I want you to imagine for a moment if somehow the tens of thousands of religious aid workers around the world, if we deem religion bad and religious workers, aid workers dangerous, do you realize that the void left around the world in some of the poorest, most destitute places in the world, the void would be utterly staggering. Imagine the number of schools, hospitals, AIDS clinics, agricultural experts, and orphanages that would be left abandoned and emptied of any resources and help. We should think twice before we accept the argument that we would be better off without religion. So, to recap here, I began with arguing where we are as a culture and this prevailing narrative that we would be better off without religion and I have provided three counterpunches to that. One, I've tried to say religion is the only force that can help us move towards true moral progress. Secondly, religion promotes happiness and well-being. And thirdly, religion is a force for good in the world. And I think there's tremendous data, very clear data to back up all three of those. Now, you might object to this. You might say to me, hmm, I've caught you in a contradiction. You might say that none of this proves, these three points, none of this proves the truth of religion or of Christianity in general. You know what I would say to that? I'd say you're right. It doesn't. What is good for the goose is good for the gander. I've always wanted to say that in a message. <laughs> always wanted to say that. See, this is what I'm trying to say. If religion cannot be disproved by bad actors, it also cannot be proved by good actors. I concede that. These realities do not prove that the Christian faith is true. My goals today have been a little more narrow. In future messages, we will get there and argue specifically, contend specifically, for the truth of the Christian faith. But my goals today have been a little more narrow. I'm simply trying to persuade you as a Christian, or if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, I'm trying to provide a counterpunch to the knee-jerk reflex that is in story, song, and speech that religion is dangerous. And if you are a veteran Christian, maybe you've been troubled or worse yet, maybe you've been silenced by the assertion that religion is poisonous. I hope you'll think twice. I hope you'll think twice. And I hope that when you engage in that conversation or that objection is raised to you, I hope you'll think twice. And now I hope you'll respond with passion and with conviction and with gentleness. And with respect. Secure that you've got a good foundation to stand on. You know, a lot of times when Christians get bent out of shape and they get angry and start yelling and, you know, start treating people's questions with disrespect, you know, a lot of times, you know why that happens? It's because they're not convinced themselves. It's because the person is pushing on their own 
questions and doubts that have never been resolved. So if you and me can become more secure in what we believe, we'll be able to engage from a place of security. We don't have to get bent all out of shape. Let me close finally on a more pastoral and personal note here. Be my last statements here. And then we're going to take communion this morning. Let me just finish here on a pastoral note. Just ask the question this morning is, are you happy? Are you happy? How about you? Not the person out there, not the person you brought. Are you happy? Do you have a sense of hope? Are you flourishing? Do you sense well-being? Are you growing as an individual? Do you have relationships that make a difference? I'm not asking, hear me on this. I'm not asking if everything in your life is going well. I'm not asking if you have everything you want. You see, these are two separate questions. You can be happy and filled with hope without everything falling into line. You can be happy and even fulfilled and hopeful when dreams have gone by the wayside and you've tasted bitter disappointment. Why, as the studies reveal, are Christians generally happy? Well, atheists suggest it is because they have created, Christians have created a kind of eternal Santa Claus. That's, that's literal. It's real. I, I mean that. I mean Santa Claus is real. <laughs> I mean the picture is real. The, 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 the thinking there is that God's not real. God is merely the result of wish fulfillment. But what they're really saying is that God is literally too good to be true. Could there be another explanation of a Christian's happiness? You see, for a Christian, to be a Christian, literally, we must give up, she must give up her life to follow Jesus. He must deny himself and take up his cross. We just learned that. That hardly seems a recipe for wish fulfillment or even happiness. And what if the happiness that Christians experience is not a pie-in-the-sky hope, but rather is the result of learning to live with limits? Learning to live inside of one's purpose and design. What if the happiness that Christians learn is also called contentment? no matter what. Like the freedom a bird feels when it is released from its caged experience into its natural environment. What if you as a person caged in the power of an enslaving self-orientation can be released to seeing, thinking, and living in a way consistent with what you have been made for? Could that be why Christians are so doggone happy? You know, Jesus never promised an easy road. My goodness, when he chose the Apostle Paul, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer. Oh boy, 
sign me up for that. What Jesus meant by that is that Paul will enter into this incredibly challenging spiritual effort to reverse the power of sin in the world. And that will mean sacrifice every day of his life. By the way, it is the same thing that you and me are called to. And yet Paul, think of his own words, how often he told churches to be joyful always, rejoice always, give thanks in all things. This morning, if you are a skeptic and you're looking inside to the Christian faith, I would just challenge you to consider the words of Jesus when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, He holds the meaning of life. Being rightly related to Him is the true source of thriving and happiness and contentment. So consider those words this morning. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I am the way, I am the truth. And I'm the life. And for believers, I, here's just a simple challenge to you in leading into our taking of the bread and the juice. I, I just want to again remind you what I said this morning, that when I quoted all those statistics about what Christians experience, that did not apply. And the studies are quite explicit about this. And this is non-Christians saying it. The studies do not apply to those who are nominal. It applies to those who are involved and engaged in a religious community. To those who build uh, spiritual wealth and spiritual depth in that community, who build relationships, who invest of time and emotions and resources. For some of us, we want to experience the benefits of Christianity without denying ourselves and taking up our cross every day and actually getting involved in the church community. You see, when we take the bread and the juice as followers of Jesus this morning, the ceremony, it is a ceremony, is for followers of Jesus. And when we take the bread, not only do we individually connect to God through Jesus and His sacrifice, but we are also saying that we belong to one another. We belong to the body of Christ. To become a follower of Jesus is to belong to His body. When you take that bread, when you take that juice, you are not only saying you are a follower of Jesus, you are saying you belong to His community. You belong to His body. So that's my challenge for you today. If you're, if you're part of that crowd that just you're religious, but you're not in the community, I want to challenge you to get a part of a church, Christ-centered community. You, let me pray, and ushers, you can work your way up. I'm going to pray for the bread. I'm going to pray for the juice. The bread represents His body. The juice represents His blood. When you come up and grab and take an element, receive the element, Take it back to your seat, and Pastor Nick will lead us in taking, taking it together. Let's thank Jesus for it. Father, thank you for a few moments together this morning.
to learn together, to relate together. Father, I think of yesterday. I think of the friends, not only blood family. I think of the friends that poured into that hospital to surround Pastor Bob and Angie. Father, so many that they have to turn people away. What tremendous value is in the church community. You've made us a different kind of people. And so today we thank you, Father, now that we can participate in the taking of the bread, your body, in the taking of the juice, your blood, and remember the eternal covenant, the eternal promise you made to us, promising the forgiveness of sins that we might be able, Jesus, to walk with you. I pray that each of us would prepare our hearts now and get our hearts ready, those of us who belong to you, to receive the bread, to receive the juice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.